welcome the pilgrims and to the buffaloes who once ruled the plain. Welcome to our social landscape. I'm J.R. Woodward. For a few years, I've been reaching out to the musician and activist Ry Cooter in an attempt to interview him about his career and views on contemporary America, and I never heard back until recently. He politely declined, but suggested I speak with the visual artist Vincent Valdez. Vincent is a Ford and Mellon Foundation Fellowship Award winner whose work's been shown at the Smithsonian Museum of American Art, the National Portrait Gallery, and the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, among many others. It turns out that Rye and Vincent had worked on a project together years ago, and this was my first exposure to his painting. In 2005, Rye released the album Chavez Ravine, and he commissioned Vincent to paint a 1950s-style ice cream truck that would chronicle a dark but relatively unknown piece of American history. In the late 1940s, the city of Los Angeles used eminent domain to take control of a neighborhood made up mostly of working-class and middle-class Mexican-Americans, Chavez Ravine, to build a low-income housing project. At the same time, however, the Brooklyn Dodgers baseball team was in negotiations to become the Los Angeles Dodgers baseball team, and the land was given to the team to build a stadium. The people were removed, sometimes peacefully, sometimes not. Their homes were bulldozed, and Dodger Stadium was built. Vincent's from San Antonio, but moved between Houston and L.A. over the years, and now spends most of his time there in Southern California. Much of his work could be called political, though I suppose it depends on your personal definition of the term. His most arresting painting that I've seen is The City, a 40-foot-wide section of panels depicting a contemporary Ku Klux Klan gathering at a city dump. I felt chills when I first saw it. His art has commented on lynchings of Chicanos, the Zoot Suit Riots, soldiers, boxers. We chatted via Zoom from my house here in Jacksonville Beach to his studio out in L.A. about his views on America and how they inform the subject matter of his art and indeed his identity as an artist. We pick up with a discussion about how to introduce children to the harsh realities of our world, a la W.E.B. Du Bois' Souls of Black Folk. Parents of color have to decide whether to expose their kids to how the world is going to come at them so they can be prepared, or to try and insulate them as best they can while they develop their sense of self. And one of the many privileges afforded to whites, this is not a decision I've had to make. Across the floor, but just like the peace hand that vanished in our dreams, never had a chance to grow. Never had a chance to grow. And now it's winter. Well, you know, I have a niece and a nephew, and I've been somewhat of an educator to other young people. And um, but I think that I don't know that I have the answer for that. But in my own small perception of the world, it's a uh, critical thinking, right? Is is for me been the window that has provided you know a beam of light, um, especially in the darkest of times. It's been the one thing that has um, granted me a true sense and understanding of the world, um, of reality, about my connection to both, and more importantly, what role I will play in both um, you know, the world and its future. So the arts, you know, the making, being an image maker has been the way that I have chosen to communicate with, with people in the present and in the future. Wow. 
I started thinking about this particular topic because I read a quote from Joni Mitchell, you know, the singer who's also an artist. I guess she considers herself, I read once, she considers herself a visual artist first, like her painting. Oh, wow. Yeah, is that interesting? Yeah. But anyway, she said, and I don't know the year, but she said, (laughs) quote, when the world becomes a massive mess with nobody at the helm, it's time for artists to make their mark. I kind I kind of view this as a time when you know the world's a massive mess. Nina Simone once said an artist's duty is to reflect the times. So one suggests that artists can and should shape society, and the other suggests reflect or document the times. So do you agree with one or the other? Do you agree with both? Um, does your do you attempt both with your art to shape and to reflect? I definitely um, agree with both, and and I also attempt. Uh, to cover both grounds in the work. And I think for me, creating these images um, that tackle such um, urgent uh, and critical subjects, um, it's my own way of, you know, during my lifetime of holding up a mirror for America to reflect in. Because uh, 21st century America, I find time and time again, more and more each day it seems, um, has or remains painfully trapped between a myth and reality, right? America is stuck in the, in the myth of who we think we are versus the reality of who we really are. And we, can, we will never be able to move forward, in my opinion, until we are able to stare um, ourselves down that, um, you know, that scary abyss of the mirror. Our own reflection, self-reflection is the toughest thing for most human beings to um, confront sure. because it's much easier as we see out, you know, outside in the world around us every day. It's much easier to turn the other way and to be easily distracted, to remain easily distracted. And I think that especially for, as an artist, um, as an individual, as a citizen, for me, it is of the utmost importance, I have a responsibility as an artist to try in my own tiny way of to help others to see ourselves and to see ourselves in these messages and these stories of our time. I think artists have always been revered as messages throughout the history of the world and its civilizations, right? Everybody from Woody Guthrie to Bob Dylan to Angela Davis and it's all artists have been this kind of antenna, especially during times of unrest. And so inserting myself into this legacy and a lineage of artists who have come before me, I hope that in my time, during immense times of distortion and chaos, that I can offer a viewer just a glimpse, a tiny moment of, of uh, reflection, and and calm as a means of, of trying to make sense of what is going on out there. Mm. So reflect- you know, whether that occurs or not, I, I don't really have control over, but yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the goal. In the studio. So calm is an interesting word you choose because I think of something like the city <clears throat> and I don't, I don't know if that invokes calm, right? You sure. know, like that, that, that's, a, that's the other angle that invokes like, confrontation of of what we are and you said a minute ago um this disconnect between who america thinks they are and who 
in actual, you know, actuality they are. Who do you, who does America think they are? Like in general terms, what are you saying that America, they think they're this, but they're not. But what is that? How do you think America sees itself as just post-racial or something like that? Well, I think the list is too long, but I think uh, for starters, you know, America loves to coin itself as a sort of self-righteous knowers of, of truth, right? And And one of the things that we are best at is lying. I think we are such great liars in this country that lying should become America's national hobby. Uh, we lie about our past, we lie about our present, we lie about our reality, we lie about our history, uh, we lie about each other, we lie about our political systems, we lie about the truth of what reality is in this country. You know, I, th- I always think about, um, I'm reminded of the wise words of uh, Gore Vidal, who once said, Americans are Puritans in the day and perverts at night. Wow. And I always thought that was such an amazing way of summing up our truth, even beyond, you know, our, um, you know, our approach to sexuality in this country, but it spoke, it echoed so many more levels about about how conflicted we are as a collective society. We can't even find a means of agreeing on how to help protect each other, mm-hmm. um, how to take care of each other, much less you know, politically, culturally, economically, and so forth. Do you think this is uh, more intense now or new, or do you think this is just a current manifestation of something that's always always been there because I, I find myself thinking this is a really unique time in our political vitriol and whatnot. But then I look back and like, we've had the civil rights movement. Like we've had these times where it has been this bad, or do you, do you think this is just another, another, uh, you know, part of the, the process or is this a really unique, unique spot? Well, I mean, I think this is where history becomes extremely imperative at a moment like this to know one's history is to know oneself. And there's a reason that we are facing this crisis in 21st century America, where we are seeing an open declaration of war on history. Mm. History reveals the truth, and not only, not truth in a philosophical sort of sense, but truth in terms of the reality of how these same exact narratives will play out. Not how they might play out, but how they will play out. To know history throughout ancient civilizations in the ancient world, we know how these stories, how these tales have always spun when it comes to fascism, Mm -hmm. dictators, violence, not only against um, your enemies, but violence from within. Violence inflicted. And and, co- and corrupting and corroding the soul of an entire nation. We know how this is going to turn out. And yet we um, pretend like this is all just sort of a roll of the dice. And so I wouldn't dare say that, that this moment in time in my lifetime is any more threatening or dangerous than my parents' generation and what they face in terms of what my great-grandparents faced or... Uh, and and so on. I think that tragedy of it all is that humans should know better by now, right? You would think humans would be better suited and better adapted in knowing our past mistakes. But wow, do we love to live in a state of denial. Once again, Gore Vidal 
and his wise words, we are the United States of amnesia. Mm -hmm. We learn nothing because we remember nothing. Yeah. There's a real power to that if you are on the end that is dictating what can and can't be remembered, yeah. as we are seeing more and more rapidly. Yeah, so with the book bannings and things like that. And you said when you talked about an interview with about about the, your painting the city, uh, my aim is to filter the present through the past because it's the past that will reveal who we are today and who we will become tomorrow. I think this moment um, specifically reveals a much bigger symptom about what's at stake here and what's really at play. When I think about creating an image like the city, um, I was always very interested and curious about uh, to see how audiences almost always immediately reacted to the 37-foot panoramic sure. oil on canvas, you know, where you sort of come face-to-face -face with these larger-than-life-size, a dozen or so, clans, men, women, and child. Yeah. There is no actual violence occurring. There is no real drama or emotional uh, climax. It's playing out visually. The entire response and attention is between, again, the calmness between you, the viewer, and the others. What I was more interested in was looking at the very first panel that almost always gets left out or ignored, overlooked during an exhibit or um, in publications even. And what this first panel revealed was, or depicted was a, a large trash pile made up of, composed of like a few um, tossed around stacked mattresses and old busted out television set and trash, it's a, it's a landfill. I was really thinking about the powerful visual symbolism and metaphor of something like this trash pile. Here is America's uh, long buried uh, hidden um, piles of of um, racism, of violence, genocide in this country, economic racism, uh, white supremacy, all of the brutality that has been um, festering like a giant zit, <laughs> like this trash pile has now resurfaced. So what it reveals to me is that in the 21st century, all of these issues that we are being bombarded with almost on, an, on a daily basis now isn't something that just magically appeared and was orchestrated and, and constructed by some, you know, sort of powerful shadow figures, you know, hidden behind these curtains. These issues have been here with us. They've been so deeply ingrained and embedded in our American way of life that most of us don't even see these issues anymore. We can't even tell them apart about how something like systemic racism can um, or feeds itself into the design and the planning of cities. Right. right. Into our political structures, into our um, you know, Christian systemic you know, uh, uh, networks that are now openly siding with political forces in this country. America has so for so long convinced itself 
that you can just slap a Band-Aid on these issues and let the next generation figure it out. Right. The youth will always take care of this, right, is what I hear more and more these days, especially from older generations. I still believe in the youth. They'll get us out of this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But how many generations have been saying this? The other thing that, that I can't help but wonder is um, how much longer the myth of white America is going to encapsulate all of our own, all of our imaginations, regardless of what color we are. Right. When I look around as a Mexican American Chicano, not much has changed. I mean, if I turn on the radio, it, you know, one of the things that I, I like to do really often is um, I don't watch a lot of television, but when I jump on and I stare at that screen, I'm interested in the commercials and I try to look for patterns. And then I play this game with myself and I say, I'm going to go through a dozen channels and there's so many more commercials now than there are actually content being played <laughs> on television. And I count out loud every single time I see a commercial that's filled with white faces. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And almost 90% of the time. Sure. sure. Very interesting. Like uh, you'll see, you know, now more frequently more black Americans that are featured in advertising, uh, in American advertising. And, but very seldomly will you see, you know, like a happy Brown family running in a park and there's Budweiser, right? right, right, right. <laughs> Those commercials are almost always reserved for, fast loans and check cashing yeah, yeah. and military recruitments. Right, right. Pride of Latinos serving your country. Sure, sure. So this is what I mean by a piece by the city, right? It's so deeply embedded in our American psyches. What a brilliant manipulation of our minds to where we can no longer identify well, who are really the oppressing forces here. Are they really the immigrants that are stealing these jobs or is it the corporations that are openly and the political systems that are openly robbing us all blind? Right. right? right. But we cannot think critically because how can we expect um, communities and societies as a people to think critically about our own lives and about how we're affected and how about, about how my actions affect your life if we're not taught critical thought. And so this is the drive in the studio, you know, and this is a, a big challenge. This is probably, you know, I've bitten off more than I can chew, I think, in, in many ways as an artist, but it's the least I can do during my lifetime. Right. And that's that's the goal, to provide that that info. People will do what they will, but to provide it. Uh, you know, going back to the garbage dump in the city, um, you, you, you named a number of different uh issues there i think another one would be environmental racism you know like when i see it i think of it's not just poverty it's this and that but like people of color are most likely to live right next to you know to that dump you know to that spot yeah which is you know you're spot on i mean uh, who gets to decide where junkyards are located courthouses um prisons industrial sectors who gets parks, who gets trees, who gets schools, hospitals, um, railroad tracks, right? I grew up uh, in the south side of San Antonio, three blocks away from a main set of railroad tracks that sliced right through the city. Eminent domain is America's cousin, right? It is so such a powerful factor, dominating force and the way that this country was designed about who was going to get strategically placed 
in terms of uh, living quarters, communities, neighborhoods, right. neighborhoods of color um, versus um, privileged neighborhoods and communities. Um, and so when we when we you know hear about new stadiums, sporting yeah. stadiums getting erected it's always the communities of color the poor neighborhoods free land right? right cheap land right who cares about who's inhabiting we need it for entertainment right. and the most bizarre part of it all is that we have been suckered into being first in line to say take what you need so that i can get this new sports team right it's an absurd twisted way of living yeah. but so, so many of these subjects um and so many of these um struggles are veiled behind this patina of patriotism yeah. nationalism right. right entertainment yeah. luxury right and it's the ploys of capitalism all working its magic in terms of convincing americans that you are, are in our best interests as capitalists, right? And uh, wow, like it is, it's overwhelming if you allow it to be. I mean, I, I can understand why so many people, close to all of us, right? It's just easier to go home, turn on the television set, barbecue, and then go to a football game. It's mm -hmm. just life is good, you know, for now. Mm -hmm. And, and I can and I can appreciate that and even respect it to, in some regard. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't born that way. <laughs> you know, I, I don't see the world that way. And, uh, and at times, it can be a burdensome thing to not be able to just be carefree once in a while. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. You've been slipping into darkness. This is a good segue into something because when you said you were overwhelmed, it reminds me of the Chavez Ravine work you did for Ry Cooter. So sure. uh, maybe just you could just kind of briefly talk about that. I read an interview about it, an article in the I think it was the one of the LA newspapers maybe about it when you were going through it at the time and uh, literally overwhelmed <laughs> apparently, but uh, having to put that really short amount of history. I mean, only a couple years there into one piece of art. And my understanding is they originally were going to build a um, like low income housing or something like that. Low income housing. And then, yep. and then I don't know what the machination was, but eventually the Dodgers now are, you know, living in this land where bulldozers just drove people off. Go a step further. Uh, one of the things that I, one of the first things that I did when I moved to Los Angeles to work on the Chavez Ravine project with, with Rye in 2005, I believe, was I bought my ticket and went to a Dodger game. Um, there is a thing that exists because I sat in it at that time um, called the Cholo section. Okay. It's all the homies and the homegirls from the hood that get these discounted tickets. And if I am remembering correctly, it was the one section in the entire stadium that had a beer limit. Right? It, <laughs> uh, I think they were like a one or two beer. And even that blew my mind thinking, yeah, but that is so twisted. Right. Like it's Last racism still. It's this sort of stereotyping. But, you know, the, out in the open for everyone to see, but, you know, the, the diehard Dodger fans, I mean, you couldn't dare say 
you know, it, it, it's a really fascinating thing to to be an observer. Always, you know, I consider myself uh, by heart an observer, somebody on the outside always looking in. This is my role in life and in the world. And I spent two years working on that project um, with Rai. I was overwhelmed, not so much by the subject matter, but I was overwhelmed because I'm simply a slow painter <laughs> and with too many details. And I'm so historically, it's so exciting for me to research history. And so I remember like researching, well, what kind of police uniforms that were the LAPD wearing specifically in 1959? And I would spend, you know, hours and days just <laughs> getting the right material. I'd go down these rabbit holes. It's important to me as an artist to be accurate, but I'm not a history painter and I have no interest in being. And I am just a painter. I am a contemporary artist working um, in a very traditional, in some ways, a very outdated um, sensibility but what drew me to the project was knowing how important it was to help reveal another buried history of American um, storytelling yeah. it was such a tragic revelation for me to take on a subject like that because my point was my hope was that I was going to convey to current generations and after once I completed the truck, that this story has not gone away. Right. This is happening in every single city, in every American uh, hemisphere. Yep. We are a nation like uh, historic Rome once was, distracted by the spectacle. Uh, the spectacle of entertainment yep. and the spectacle of competition and sport and the spectacle of violence. Yep. And we've gotten so lost in this way of viewing the world and viewing our own selves uh, that we are willing to give up any of our own uh, um, safety nets as in terms of um, not only as individuals, but as communities. And I remember at that time, San Antonio, I think for the San Antonio Spurs, same old tale were just they had already had a stadium and it just announced they needed a newer more expensive stadium and people lined up it seemed to say take my money <laughs> but when it comes to schools in this country sure sure right, it's 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 almost night and day and so i i tend to use a lot of um or to tackle the subject of of sports and sports figures um sports mentality in uh, a lot of my work as well, like the boxer, the boxing, for instance, yeah, yeah. in the boxing ring. But again, what I'm, my intention and my aim is to go for something much bigger, something uh, to reveal something quite unseen. Remember, as a kid, I was always going to Spurs games with my dad um, at the small arena back then. And I was always so fascinated by the crowds and the momentum of these crowds. I remember even as a child staring and my favorite part of the entire event that night wouldn't be what was unfolding on the court below, but it was waiting for the wave. And they would start from row one and go up the spiral and everybody would wait your turn and stand up and do the wave. And it was like this living entity that required massive participation. And I'll never forget thinking to myself, but wow, if we can do, if we can generate this kind of unity 
for something so stupid and meaningless, you know, and fun. Yeah, yeah. Think about if we wanted to do this for real good, for something important. Imagine lining up in the streets and saying, "We demand healthcare." Yeah, we demand off the street. Yeah, 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 yeah. we demand the end to homelessness. We demand, we demand that mass shootings, right, right, uh, that something's done about it. Think about the power of change in unity. And I always wondered, but what happens to each one of these people? Sixty thousand people when we leave here, and everybody gets in their cars and drives home. And it's like we're so disconnected that yeah. that moment never existed. And so that always ingrained in my memory. And, and I always, I still come back to it to, to this day because I know that people have the potential and the power. We've just been so convinced that we are absolutely powerless. Right, right. Did you see the recent New York Times piece about the Chavez Ravine where the families are trying to get some of that land back? So I, I, guess, I, I, did, um, I guess it happened with um, an African-American family who had had some land, beachfront property stolen. Sure. So then that has um, given some people some hope that something might change now about the Chavez Ravine. I don't think they're getting rid of Dodger Stadium, but maybe they'll get some kind of reparations. So if you're familiar with that, then you have to you have to feel good because what you did, right? And what Rye did with his album, like you know that's a stepping stone to to where we are now, right? You know, and, and so that's a it's this probably um just a one minute example, but like yeah, like so that piece of art and the story behind it and then Rye's album and like all that work, like it's it might take twenty years or something, but like maybe that you know, that, that gives you hope at least that you have to, you have to feel proud. I you know, if it wasn't for, for people like Rye and, and, and Don Normark, who really um, was the catalyst behind, in many ways, behind the telling of this tale um, and, and making and preserving this history of the Chavez Ravine, you know, he photographed at age 19 wow. and he wandered in as a young man, as a young artist um, while he was an art student and just photographed something that he felt, Nobody else was looking at. Wow. Here we are, 19. Yeah. I mean, here we are 50 years later, 60 years later now. He's already passed away. And, and this tale is still being told. You know, the ice cream truck that I painted and collaborated with Ryan is about to open this fall uh, in November at the LA County Museum. LA County. And, and I feel like, I feel, I was telling Ryan the other day, I feel like it now has more momentum now and more power in its storytelling capacity than it did even when I completed it in 2008. And so it's amazing as an artist to see these things, your creations, um, once they go out into the world, they no longer belong to me, right? They belong to the world out there. And that's the hope and the goal and the dream of every artist is that these works really take on a life of their own after they leave your studio and your possession. The worst nightmare for an artist is it is that they have no lives. They take on no presence in the world, right? Well, I would be a terrible artist then. I would be because I'm like, man, I worked so hard on that damn shit. I'm gonna keep that man. I'm gonna keep that <laughs> it took me two years to do that damn truck. <laughs> That's hilarious. No, you know, for me it's like our frustration was uh that it took so damn long because it it was so intricately painted, like most of these works that I create, and I don't ever want to see them again. You know, it's like I know <laughs> them. 
so well. Every square inch I've got imprinted in my memory. Sure. And so I don't need to see it in front yeah. of me. Yeah, you don't. Um, it's funny though. You say uh, this, this, it's even matters more right now than it did when you painted it. Yet this is like a time that's really more repressive now than when you painted it. So maybe that's the flip side of the same coin. Like maybe that is why it matters more is because we need this kind of light, you know, and, and the darkness we're in. Although I don't have much faith in um, the Dodgers organization or any you know, mega billionaire team owner to do the right thing. I think that, you know, maybe uh, these families unfortunately might see like free nachos or free popcorn, you know, yeah, yeah, at, I know. at a game night. But it would be, it's, it's a, I mean, I think that this is the real struggle now that is a newer, darker chapter um, of American history is that now, um, you know, as opposed to like maybe, at the turn of the 20th century, right, 1920, 29, around the Depression, we had these tycoons, we had these already uh, self-made millionaires and corporatists, but now it's at a level unseen in terms of wealth, right, yeah. and power, because now they are merged in with, uh, openly with our political system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Labor in this country has always been um, in the crosshairs of, of corporate America for a very long time and, and industry in this country. There's no denying that. Sure. This goes back, you know, to the 1800s. Um, but now these, what I fear is that, or what I see playing itself out is that the political system is merged with the corporate system, is merged with the police system, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the American police and militarized the militarization of our police forces in this country is no joke. Right. Well, they are openly waging war on American citizens, dissenters, um, people speaking up, speaking out, and they make no shame. Whether I don't care what team you're on, because they, I really do think they're more like sports teams than they are political parties, you know, <laughs> blue or red. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's the same. And they, both sides are openly giving you, providing more than enough examples. Barack Obama, right, was right up there during Occupy Wall Street, making it known if you stand up and you go against us, you are not with us, right? That's no different than what George W. was saying. Sure, yeah, yeah. It's just neoliberal. neoliberal. The simple difference was that it wasn't being spoken about foreigners right here, right right now, right? Are you okay on time for one or two more? Sure. Sure. Okay. This is another quote um, I really like from George Gerbner, and he he's a um, late communication scholar. Gerbner said, the telling of stories has always been the principal shaper of human behavior. Cave walls, the Bible, whatever. You have called yourself a storyteller. What do your stories tell us? What do you want? What do you want to be to be learned from your stories? My goal, my intention as an artist in 21st century America is to speak about 21st century America, the things that I saw, the things that I did, the faces, the places, all of what I observed in this short amount of time while I'm here is going to, I hope, echo a bigger picture about this moment in time. What I hope that these 
subjects and images reveal, not only in the present, but in the future, uh, is a story of struggle in this country. I come from a community that was born out of struggle. I come from a nation that was surely born out of struggle. And I hope that this work begins to speak about ways that we can transform this struggle um, in America. Now, this is, I think the struggle in America speaks volumes about how, um, about America's inability to face its own defeats, to face its own conflicts, its own threats with its own self. Um, and I, I, I made this piece once titled uh, Requiem. It was a, a, a large bronze cast, uh, an eight-foot uh, American eagle. Raven? Okay, eagle. Okay. Viewer, yeah, it's placed on the floor, three-dimensional sculpture. When the viewer stands around, walks around, and looks down on this bird that's sort of caught in the throes of struggle, its its beak is open, it's screaming, its tongue is flailing, its wings are, are trying to flap, almost like a phoenix trying to rise up desperately. Then you start to look at the details and it's filled with wounds on its abdomen, its chest cavity, its wings. And then you notice, you, re- you begin to recognize that it is clawing its own self. There is no more visible threat. There is no outside boogeyman like we've always been told. We are at war with our own selves. And I've always felt that since I was much younger. I hope that this work eventually becomes a chronological timeline of the ways that I saw, in the powerful ways in which I saw uh, resilience being born from struggle. Through, through our resilience, we, are, um, we will eventually transform our own selves and transform this society. It's not going to be easy, though. Um, a dying dog never goes down easily. Yeah, yeah. Rattlesnakes don't come What matters most, yeah, in a series like The New Americans, which is what I'm working on these days, um, I'm aiming to find, to search for and locate 21 Americans in the 21st century who are still fighting the good fight. Not for fame, not for power, not for profit, but because it's still, simp- it's still simply the right thing to do as human beings. This is what America, to me, truly is. It's the individuals who have helped to stand defiant in the face of struggle. Uh, this is what I am most interested in as an artist. Oh, killer, man. I hope, I hope art can do it. You know, as a sociologist, we always would talk about, like, if you want to make change, should you go through economics, pol- politics, or culture? And I was trained in kind of a Marxist program, so it was... <laughs> economics economics but then i've read people saying no man like art is the way to to find empathy and the way to this aesthetic culture and like you have to go through cultural means and and i probably when i first heard that i would have scoffed at it but now as i learned more about it it brings me to people like you like no man maybe that is that is the first step you know i don't i don't know but i hope I hope your, uh, you, you know, your your medium can do it. Well, you know that's amazing because as an artist on the opposite, and I would say that, look, don't get me wrong, I'm not convinced that art is the solution, right? Art isn't going to just to start topple government or change the wheels of capitalism. But what art is going to do, the power of the real power of art is that it is going to remind us 
continue to remind us how to be human, mm. right? And even that simple reminder today, because of everything that, the way that everything is unfolding, um, I feel like, God, even that in itself is a miniature revolution. Yeah. So if we all find our own unique ways of doing our part and contributing to pushing back, this is how change, real change begins to occur. Thanks for listening to my interview with contemporary American painter Vincent Valdez, and I hope you enjoyed our talk. If so, please be sure to like it and all the usual podcast spots and reviews. I appreciate it. It's a free public sociology blog on social issues, and I think the more people that hear it, the better. And I invite you to become a member if you're not already. You just have to create a username and a password, then you can comment on all the posts. I appreciate Vincent giving me an hour of his time. Artists are always hustling, so I'm thankful for it. And thanks to Rye Cooter for greasing the wheels for me to talk to Vincent. Although that doesn't mean I'm going to stop bugging Rye with the hopes that the stars might align for us to chat. The episode starts and finishes with Winter in America by Gil Scott Heron, the studio version, then this acoustic version. Midway through, I snuck in Slipping into Darkness by War. I'll post some links to Vincent's work in the write-up, and I'll remind you that our social landscape is a listener-supported blog and podcast, so consider making a one-time donation or recurring monthly donation by clicking on the yellow Donate button on the homepage. Send any questions or comments to me at jr at our socialandscape.com. Thank you for listening. It's a time when all of the hillers done been killed or been betrayed. Yes, people know, people know it's a winter. Winter in America The truth is there ain't nobody fighting because Well nobody knows what to say Brother save your soul Winter in America And the Constitution was a noble piece of paper and with free society we'll struggle but they died in vain and now democracy is ragtime on the corner unemployed hoping that it rains well they've been hoping for some rain and uh, I see the robins perched in barren treetops The watching last-ditch races go marching across the floor And like the peace signs that vanished in our dreams And never had a chance to grow Well, they never had a chance to grow If somebody won't know, tell them it's winter So feel like winter in America It's a time when all of the hillers, people who could help us done been